Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Believe it or not, Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner are buried side by side. In 1992, Hefner found out that the spot next to Marilyn Monroe's was available in the cemetery and reportedly said, I'm a believer in all things symbolic, so spending eternity next to Marilyn is too sweet to pass up. Which I think means that Hugh Hefner is the only person in history who was more of a creep after he died than when he was living. (laughs) But he was right about one thing. Their bodies lying next to each other in the cemetery is indeed symbolic, likely in way more ways than he realized. Marilyn Monroe was the first ever centerfold in the first ever edition of the now infamous Playboy magazine created by Hugh Hefner. But it wasn't her intention, actually, to appear in Playboy. Marilyn Monroe actually posed for the photos that were used a few years earlier when she was desperate for money. Photographer promised her that he could make her unrecognizable in the photos so that no one would know it was her, a promise that he was ultimately unsuccessful at keeping. He paid her just $50 for a two-hour session. Now, $50 in the 40s and 50s is much more than $50 is now, but it's still basically nothing, especially when you consider that Hugh Hefner would go on to make millions off of those photos, both from the success of that edition of the magazine and the Playboy empire that he built off of it in years to come. And to make matters worse, Hefner neither paid for the use of the photos nor sought Marilyn Monroe's consent to publish them. But they were published just the same. Marilyn Monroe shocked the world when the news broke of her death at the age of 36. And while people still speculate on the cause of her death, the most likely explanation is that it was suicide by overdose. Marilyn struggled with her mental health throughout her career, reportedly telling her psychologist at the time and those close to her that she felt, quote, worthless and that she felt like people were only nice to her for what they could get out of her. In her words, life, quote, wasn't worth living anymore. At one point, she is said to have told a lover of hers, I feel passed around, I feel used, I feel like a piece of meat. But perhaps the most baffling thing to to most Americans, at least at the time of her death, was this one question. How could this happen to Marilyn Monroe? I I mean, she was an icon, How could a woman who was so revered and so desired by so many, how could she not want to live anymore? Marilyn Monroe, in many ways, was the quintessential sex symbol. She was the center of men's fantasy. She was who many women wanted to be like or at least wanted to look like. So how could someone like that, with that status, who was so appreciated and so revered by so many people, how could she not want to go on living? Truth be told, the answer to that question is actually fairly simple, but it's something we tend to forget in a hypersexualized society like ours. The answer to that question is an understanding that being desired 
is not the same thing as being known. Being envied is not the same thing as being cherished. It's that having people fantasize about your body is not the same thing as having people recognize your personhood. And maybe to put it most succinctly and most directly, it's that lust is not the same thing as love. You know, in many ways, I I think Marilyn Monroe might have been the first public casualty of the sexual revolution. Her, Her story, I think, stands to show that, among other things, lust can actually kill people, sometimes quite literally. And it does. And while Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner are now long gone, I think their stories and their legacies, the movements that they represent, they loom large over history to this day. And as their bodies lay in the cemetery side by side, we are reminded that there are villains and there are casualties of the sexual revolution, whether or not our society is ready to recognize that fact. Turn with me if you have a Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are in week three of a series that we've called Killjoys, where we are looking at some of the most common enemies that we have to our life and our joy in Jesus as we follow him, and then what to do about those things when they occur in our hearts and minds. And today, I want us to talk about lust. So for that, we are going to go to Jesus' most infamous teaching on the topic, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. We're going to work our way through that passage line by line here in just a moment. But you all heard it read a moment ago. Thanks to Bobby for reading that, by the way. Uh, You guys heard the passage. The, The language that Jesus uses in it is fairly extreme, or at least it feels that way to us, most of us living in the 21st century. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. These words from Jesus about lust, at least to most of us today, probably read as anything from overly prudish to outright absurd. It's hard for many people today to fathom how Jesus could teach something so seemingly anti-sex and anti-sexual desire. It's teachings like these, the ones that we just read, that lead some to say that the Bible has nothing of value to add to our culture's current conversation around sex and sexual ethics. But I want to try to show you this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus' words here in this passage, in Matthew chapter 5, as odd as they may read to some of us, are actually deeply needed and profoundly relevant, both in his day and in ours. But first, we need to set Jesus' words in their context. To understand what Jesus says here about lust and why he says what he says, we need to first understand the framework for sex that he was operating out of when he said it. So Jesus was steeped in the Hebrew scriptures of his day, what you and I would call the Old Testament scriptures. Those scriptures actually teach that sex is a beautiful thing, that it's a gift from God. In fact, there is an entire book in the Old Testament made up of erotic love poetry celebrating sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. As I've said before here on Sundays, that book, Song of Songs, says some things that I think would even make us modern Americans blush a little bit if we understood what they mean. The scriptures, regardless of what you may have heard about them, are decidedly pro-sex. But those same scriptures also make it clear that sex has a specific purpose. 
and therefore a specific context that it belongs in as a result. So sex, according to Genesis chapter 2, is a way of becoming one flesh with another person, specifically someone of the opposite sex that you've committed your life to through marriage. Sex is a way of giving yourself to that other person in a safe context of trust and mutual affection and selflessness and sacrifice. Biblically, marriage is joining your life to another person. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, all sorts of other things. It's saying to that other person, all of me is yours, all of me belongs to you with nothing held back. And so sex in that context is communicating that same reality with your body. It's becoming one physically with the other person. And because that is what sex is, the Bible does teach very plainly that no sexual activity should happen outside of that marriage context. The reason being that sex outside of that environment, outside of marriage, would be saying something with your body that is decidedly not true of the rest of the relationship. Physically, then you would be saying, all of me is yours with nothing held back, but in reality, there would actually be a good bit of you that you're holding back. You are functionally saying, hey, I I like you enough to do this with you, but not more than this. I would like to join this part of me to you, but not any other part of me. And, And really, even when it comes to who I prefer to do this with, I like it with you right now, but I'd really prefer to keep my options open in the future in case someone better comes along. We can try to be coy about it. We can use pleasant sounding language for it. But that is what we are saying when we take that type of activity outside of the marriage context. And the Bible just views that as a very dishonest, very disjointed way to go about a relationship with another person. So I think some people are actually confused on this outside of the church. I think some people believe that Christians are just prudes for no reason. Like, that we all agree sex is fun, but that Christians, for some arbitrary reason, have just decided that you should only have fun with one person for the rest of your life. I think that's how some people think about it. But you've got to see from this, that's not the case. It's actually that Christians fundamentally disagree about the purpose of sex, and therefore we practice it differently from the rest of the world. And I would argue that if you're in the room today and you wouldn't claim to be a follower of Jesus, even if you disagree with the Christian sexual ethic, I think you've got to admit the logic behind it is actually fairly sound. Don't do something with your body that you're not prepared to do with your life. That's the logic. The the logic is that God doesn't make arbitrary rules. Integrity matters, the Bible says, even and especially when it comes to something as important as sex. So all of that brings us back to what Jesus says about lust in Matthew chapter 5. The reason that Jesus' warnings in this passage are so intense, or at least read that way to us, is because in this passage, Jesus is not actually warning people against sex. He's warning people against the opposite of sex. He's warning them against lust. The mindset that Jesus warns against in this passage at its core actually undermines and undercuts everything that sex is supposed to be about. 
And because Jesus and the Bible are pro-sex, they are anti anything that destroys and undermines sex. And a lot of that can be summed up with Jesus' word, lust. So let's take a look at what Jesus says in the passage. Chapter 5, we'll start in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, meaning in the Old Testament, it reads, you shall not commit adultery. So the word adultery in the Bible, strictly speaking, refers to a married person engaging in sexual activity with anyone they're not married to. But we know from elsewhere in the Bible that the same logic would actually apply to a single person, since any sexual activity that they participate in would be outside of a marriage context. So the Old Testament law prohibits all of that, Jesus says. But next, he is going to show us the intention behind that Old Testament command. So continue with me in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, or we could infer at a man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her or him in their heart. So apparently, the purpose of this Old Testament command against adultery wasn't just to prohibit sexual activity with someone you're not married to. It was also to divert people away from lust, from looking at another person with the intention of lusting after them. The word lust in the Bible refers to any strong, overpowering desire that you have for something that isn't yours. That's what that word means. The desire for something that isn't yours. So to use a different Bible word, it is in essence to covet, to, to really, really want something that doesn't belong to you. Generally, this word lust in the Bible is actually used to describe the desire for things that aren't yours, to desire objects that aren't yours. In other words, you can lust after more money or a better job or a different standard of living or a nicer house or a nicer neighborhood. You can lust after all of those things. In fact, every other time that the word lust is used in the New Testament, it refers to the desire for an object, not a person. And I think that's telling. Because lust in regards to people is when you take another human being and you turn them into an object. It's when you make them simply a means by which to satisfy your desires or your fantasy. It's when you effectively strip the humanity away from another person and view them as someone who can simply supply something that you happen to want. It's the sexual commodification of another human being is what we're talking about. Now, the primary thing that Jesus has in mind here is obviously objectifying people sexually speaking. So gazing at a person you are not married to because you are physically attracted to them. But that said, I, I don't think that lust is always sexual in its expression. Because lust can also be when you spend time comparing and contrasting your spouse to other people's spouses. It's when you entertain thoughts in your mind about how much better your life might be if you were married to a different person or a different type of person. It's when you dwell on how much more fun or thoughtful or romantic or hot that other person is than your spouse is. If you're single... Lust can be when you envision marriage as primarily a thing to make you happy rather than another person to unite your life with. For all of us, single or married, 
It's when we think about a spouse or a future spouse as a person who exists to meet all of our needs personally, whether those are sexual needs, emotional needs, or something else. All of those things are also types of lust, even if they aren't explicitly sexual in their orientation. Because with all of those things, everything I just mentioned, whether you realize it or not, you are still objectifying another person. You are still using them as a means to your end. And that is the definition of lust. But to be sure, in this particular passage, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is at least primarily talking about sexual objectification. He's talking about the decision to, to take a person with a story and a soul and a past and a future, someone with needs of their own, and boil them down to a collection of body parts that you enjoy looking at or fantasizing about or using for your own enjoyment. So just to make sure we're clear here, let's list out some examples of lust. What would be included in what Jesus calls lust? A few things for you here. Uh, lust, to state what should be obvious to most of us, would include viewing any type of pornography. If it is a sin to, quote, look at a person in order to lust after them, then porn has made that sin into an international pastime. So looking at porn would be considered lust. But lust is also when you click over to that Explore tab on Instagram and you start scrolling, pausing just a little bit longer on all the physically attractive people to you. Maybe even giving them a little like just to let them know that you see it. Lust is also when you stop long enough on the suggestive videos on TikTok that your For You page knows exactly the type of thing that you like and keeps feeding it to you in greater and greater quantity. Lust is when you see a person out for a run or at the gym with very few clothes on and you choose to take that second or third or seventh glance back at them. Lust is fantasy. It's hypersexualized movies and TV shows and podcasts and books. Uh, lust is also the mindset that fuels pretty much all of hookup culture. So, so it's when you're swiping through your dating app of choice and primarily asking the question of each person, would I or would I not like to hook up with this person on the screen? It's having a friend that you hook up with periodically because dating is just too complicated and you both need a release. We could go on with examples, right? There's plenty more where that comes from. But hopefully you guys are getting the picture. All of those things would be considered lust by Jesus' definition. Lust is any time that we turn another person, someone we know or someone on a screen, into the object of our gaze, fantasy, or pleasure. That is what Jesus here warns against. Now, here's why I said earlier that all of that is really the opposite of sex as God intended it. And I think this is so important for us to realize, especially with today's teaching. If sex is becoming one with another person, with nothing at all held back, then lust truly could not be more different from that idea. Lust has the exact opposite intention. It has the exact opposite orientation. So lust is taking what you want from another person while holding lots of yourself back from them. Sex gives, lust takes. Sex is sacrificial, lust is consumeristic. Sex humanizes the other person, lust objectifies and commodifies the other person. 
In nearly every measurable way there is, lust is the opposite of sex as God intended it. And that is precisely why Jesus can be anti-lust and yet pro-sex. Because lust and sex are not the same thing. In most substantial ways, they're actually polar opposites. Now, all of that said, here is our problem with all of this. There are few things more deeply integrated into our modern society than lust is. I'm not exaggerating when I say that lust is nearly everywhere we look. So I've been watching a good bit of Vols basketball this season because apparently I like torturing myself. (laughs) And as I've been watching the games, amidst the sadness that happens at the end of the games, during the games, I've been noticing some of the commercials that are on during these games. And and I've noticed that in these commercials, we now use lust to sell pretty much every product that there is. So uh, I noticed this one a while back. Uh, You'll see a commercial that is just 28 straight seconds of a man with no shirt on with an incredible six-pack, probably like an eight-pack, if I'm being honest, from just shot from different angles with all this mood lighting and cool music playing. And then at the very end, it'll say, Geo, fragrance for men. (laughs) And it's like, uh, does the cologne create the six-pack? Because I'm not really a cologne guy, but I will douse myself in cologne (laughs) if that's all it takes. Like, we just use lust to sell any product. Uh, I saw this one a couple years back. Uh, there's a commercial where it's just like the whole commercial is just a man and a woman and what I can only describe as the early stages of foreplay. I don't know if I can say that word in church, but I just did. <laughs> so they're just making out through the whole commercial, and then at the very end, it's like the new Lexus RX 350. <laughs> and at the end, I was like, was there even a car in that commercial? Like, I didn't see a car at all in that commercial. So lust is everywhere in our society, right? It's almost like, in fact, it's not almost like, it is that we don't know how to hold people's attention or sell products or function much at all in our society without it. We are being discipled in dozens of different ways every single day, whether we realize it or not, to objectify other people as a normal way of life. Now, to some of that, some of you might respond with, okay, sure, but what's the big deal? Like, sex is a natural, human, healthy desire. So so what's the harm in a little fantasy? What's the harm in getting a little turned on by seeing an attractive person, whether that's in real life or on a screen? Is that really that big of a deal? Do we really need to be that on guard, that on edge against that sort of thing? Well, I'm just going to give you some of the data and let you draw your own conclusion about it. Here is what we know so far empirically about lust. First, lust destroys intimacy. Studies are now showing that specifically, the more porn a person watches, the more crushingly unrealistic their expectations are about sex with a real person and the less tolerance they therefore have for the imperfect realities of a real human sexual relationship. Lust also fuels sexual violence. There are over 50 studies out there at this point that directly link porn consumption to acts of sexual assault. 
lust actually decreases the frequency of sex that people have. Most every survey done in the past 10 years is showing that the further we get into the sexual revolution, the so-called sexual revolution, the less sex people are actually having. Doesn't sound like a wildly successful revolution, if you ask me. We talked about this some a few weeks ago when Tim was here, but lust contributes to widespread problems with body image issues for a lot of people. The more our society idolizes men and women that meet our near impossible standards of beauty, the more the other 99.9% of us struggle to see our own bodies as beautiful and desirable. Lust is having a profoundly negative impact on children in our society. The most recent data I could find, this is from a couple years ago, shows that children are having their first encounter with porn when they are 10 years old. That's elementary school. Some high schools are now adopting what they call porn literacy classes because students are entering into sexual relationships with one another thinking that the porn that they watch depicts realistic sexual relationships, which it pretty much never does. So we are, we are actually having to reactively teach our high schoolers not to follow the cues that they see in porn so that rates of sexual assault and violent sex acts in our schools don't skyrocket. And finally, lust harms women. Lust harms women. More and more we are seeing articles in mainstream magazines that claim to, quote, help women have sex like men. And what they mean by that is to help them have sex flippantly and meaninglessly. Here are a couple actual headlines I have seen in mainstream publications. First, how to biohack your brain to have sex without getting emotionally attached. And here's what to do if you start catching feelings. In other words, for the person you're sleeping with. Some of these articles, and I'll, I'll link to them in the notes that we post later today so you can see that I'm not making this up. Some of these articles advise women to try substances like cocaine or meth before they have sex with someone or to focus their thoughts on a different person than the one they're having sex with during sex to avoid becoming emotionally attached to the person they're sleeping with. Any therapist worth their salt will tell you that what is being advised in those articles is something called dissociation, a mental disconnect between your mind and your body and or surroundings. And dissociation, just to be clear, is generally a psychological response to trauma that you receive counseling to unlearn, not a method that you advise people to participate in. So just in case you're wondering how sexual liberation is going for women, there it is. We are at the point where we are teaching women harmful psychological methods to help them have more meaningless sex. Lust harms women. And really, those are just a handful of the negative effects lust is having right now on our society, on our own hearts and minds, and those of the people that we love and know. I could probably give you another 10 examples if we had time, fairly easily. But here's my point. As a society, we can keep playing this game where, where we pretend that lust is just fun and exciting and harmless and natural, where we tell jokes about it and write TV plot lines out of it, where we use it to sell products and magazines nonstop. But listen, the, the reality the, the data sitting right in front of us 
tells a profoundly different story than the one we choose to believe. Lust harms people. Not because sex is bad, but because sex as God intended it as good, and lust is the opposite of what God intended. Lust trains us to see other human beings as objects, as commodities. It trains us to ignore the image of God in another human being and instead use them to our own ends. And as we try to mention often around here at City Church, any time that we ignore the image of God in another person, harm and destruction always follows. God doesn't make arbitrary rules. He knew that all of this would result if lust goes unchecked in a society, which is why he says what he says about lust. God doesn't make arbitrary rules. So all of this is precisely why Jesus instructs us in Matthew chapter 5 to do whatever it takes to root out lust from our own hearts. So on that, I want you to pick it back up with me in verses 29 and 30 of our passage. Look back with me at those two verses. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body, be, uh, your whole body go into hell. So first, it is worth clarifying here that Jesus is not being literal. Just thought I'd tell you that before you get out like the saw and the scalpel. Like it's just important that you know Jesus sometimes chooses to be figurative with his language. Jesus is not seriously advocating for amputation and disfigurement as a strategy against lust. Jesus is simply using hyperbole to get his point across like he wants it to come across. But listen, that's anything but a cop-out to this passage. Because if Jesus is willing to use such extreme language to grab people's attention in what he says, that should tell us something about how serious he thinks this stuff is. Uh, as a communicator, you don't incorporate something like amputation into your teaching for no reason, right? Jesus is trying to be clear in what he says that in the fight against lust, we need to be willing to take drastic and even extreme measures to resist its hold on our heart. If sexual sin is this destructive, if it's this destructive to ourselves and to society, we need to take an extreme approach to resisting its pull on our lives. So let me just try to give you some examples of the types of things this might include that you do in order to take drastic measures in the fight against lust. If this is an issue for you, maybe write these things down, see if any of them might need to apply to you. Maybe for you, it looks like making certain shows or movies off limits for you. If you are easily given towards lust, there are going to be some things that you just have no business watching. And I'll add, uh, I don't just mean the shows or movies that show a lot of skin or have a lot of sex scenes in them. For sure, look out for those. But you might want to also consider avoiding the shows where most every single plot line makes light of sex and revolves around sex and encourages the objectification of other people. 
There are plenty of shows out there that show very little skin and yet are very unhealthy in their mindset towards sex and sexual intimacy and are training you to think about sex in really unhealthy ways. Now, is it inconvenient to avoid those kinds of shows? Is it going to be a little bit awkward if your friends are talking about how cool that new show is and you're like, haven't seen it, and they're like, why? And you're like, let's change the subject. Is that awkward? Is that inconvenient? Yeah. That might be what it requires to, in Jesus' metaphorical language, cut off your hand in regards to lust. Maybe for you, uh, it's pursuing accountability on your devices. So for most of us, our phones, our tablets, our computers are probably the access point when it comes to things like porn or, or certain apps or just unhelpful use of social media in a way that leads to the objectification of other people. And because of that, I know men and women that have installed either accountability software on their devices or just activated restrictions on their phones and had their spouse or friend or roommate or life group member be the only one that knows the password for it. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Maybe uh, I know men right now that are rocking an old school flip phone. Like not the new razor, the old razor. And when I see that, I'm always like, okay, either you're a drug dealer and you have a burner phone <laughs> or you're taking lust seriously in your life. Or maybe both. I'm not here to judge, right? Could be either one. Could be both. But I know people that, are, that take it to that level. It's just not good for them to have a phone that has internet access on it. And so they choose to buy a phone that doesn't have internet access on it. Now, is that, is that inconvenient? So to this day, if I want to download a new app on my phone, I have to get my wife to type in a password for it. Is that awkward? Especially when I'm like hanging out with people and they're like, you should download this app. And I'm like, I will later, trust me. <laughs> is that awkward? Yeah, it's awkward. But that might be what it takes. Awkward might be what it takes to resist this tendency in your life. Uh, maybe it's using discretion about dating apps that you're on. I realize that right now it is probably unrealistic to think that nobody in our church will be on dating apps. I get that. It can be a helpful way to meet people. I get that. But with that being said, please be aware of what these apps might be teaching you to believe about sex and about relationships and about other people. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them, whether you realize it or not, are literally training you to objectify people and shop for people based on their appearance. And if you don't think that is having an effect on how you think about yourself or how you think about others or how you think about sex in general, I think you're being naive. So if you are single and you choose to use dating apps, fine. Practice asking yourself though, is this encouraging me to see other people as holistic, complete human beings, as people with souls made in the image of God? Or is it encouraging me to consistently objectify other people based on their appearance? Lastly, I'll be honest with you, uh, the first and most important way to resist the tendency towards lust in your life is to tell someone, to tell someone that it's an issue for you. The thing about sexual sin is that it thrives, and I mean thrives in the dark. 
The longer you struggle with lust without anybody else being aware of it, the more enslaving and sometimes the darker it becomes, the more permanent the struggle becomes. So if you want to get serious about the fight against lust, one of the most fruitful things you can do is tell another follower of Jesus about it, like today. Like if you need to get out your phone right now and be like, I need to talk to you about something, send that text, I need to talk to you about something today, don't let me not do it, that is fine. Tell somebody about it today. And, and just personal pet peeve, you probably heard us say this before around City Church, um, be completely honest about it. Don't do the thing where you say, I struggle with lust. That can mean anything. Say, I struggle with lust and here's what it looks like. It's this TV show. It's this access point to porn. It's this social media network or this dating app in my life. It's this is when it happens and I need your help in fighting its presence in my life. If you don't know where to start in the fight against lust, start there. Tell somebody as soon as you possibly can. Tell somebody and ask for their help. So hopefully all of that gives you at least some ideas and I'm sure there are a lot more ideas where those came from. Hopefully, we can get into all of that this week as we discuss this teaching in our life group settings. But at the end of it all, here's the commander's intent. Here's the big idea. Do whatever it takes to fight the presence of lust in your heart. Do whatever it takes. Even if it's complicated, even if it's unideal, even if it's inconvenient, do it anyway. That's kind of Jesus' point in the passage Pretty inconvenient to not have a hand. Pretty inconvenient to not have an eye. But his point is that sex is important enough in your life and lust is destructive enough to your life that it is more than worth some inconveniences, if that's what it takes. So uh, as we approach the end of this teaching, uh, I'll just tell you this. Um, as a pastor, it is so difficult to teach on sex. Uh, one, just because of how heavy it is to talk about. We all know that. But two, I, I think part of the reason it's so difficult to give a teaching on sex is because when it comes to sexual sin and sexual shame, there are really two different messages that people need to hear depending on where they're at in the journey. One message is the message that we've already heard today, right? The message that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, do whatever it takes to fight sexual sin in your life. Some of us in this room have gone too long treating lust and sexual sin like it's not that big of a deal. And because of that, it is wreaking havoc on our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. And listen, just personally, um, I am tired of seeing lust destroy people's lives and destroy people's families. I can't tell you how many conversations that we have with people inside our church, outside of our church, where lust is somewhere among the most significant factors just wreaking havoc in people's lives. And I gotta be honest, as a pastor, I'm just sick of it. I hate seeing sin ravage people's lives, and I would rather see us find freedom from it. So the message some of us need to hear this morning is, hey, wake up. This is a big deal. Let's get to work. 
Let's do something about it. Sex is far too important, far too powerful, far too significant to just approach it flippantly and carelessly. That's one message that I think people need to hear. But there's another message that I know some of us need to hear as well. Some of us in this room have been effectively cutting off our hand for years of our life. We're taking every precaution that we know how to take against lust. We're doing all the things that I just listed off, and still lust haunts us and wreaks havoc on our life. For some of you, you've been taking it as seriously as you know how to take it, and it's still there. No matter what you do, you can't fight that lingering glance. You can't get past that porn habit in your life. You can't control the places that your heart and your mind wander in certain moments. And because of that, I think some of us are just wrecked by feelings of guilt and shame and failure over sexual sin in our life. And I think most of us probably know for now there is no shame quite like sexual shame. So if that is where you're at this morning, if you're in that place, you've been taking it as seriously as you know how to take it, and you still feel like a failure, I want you to hear something way more important then cut off your hand in regards to lust. You ready? And I want you to look straight at me when I say it. God's affections for you are not dependent on how successfully you fight lust in your life. God's affections for you are not dependent on how good you are at fighting lust in your life. That is not how God operates. I want you to look at a verse on the screen with me. This is Romans chapter 5. Verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's something I need all of us to hear today, and God knows I need to hear it more than anybody. Jesus did not die for the future version of you. He did not die for the new and improved you. He didn't die for the spiritually mature version of you, the spiritually impressive you. He did not die for the version of you that no longer struggles with things that are embarrassing to confess. It is so incredibly easy for some of us to believe that Jesus is putting up with us now because one day we'll be something impressive. That's not the case according to Romans 5. According to Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every single one of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross, which means no sin is too big, no sinful life pattern is too difficult, no secret is too dark for the spirit of Jesus to bring life and healing right into the midst of it. And his affections for you, follower of Jesus, do not change in the meantime. They're not at risk. I'll tell you a little bit about my story. The first time that I saw porn, I was in middle school. A friend of mine came over to the house. He said, have you seen this website? And before I could say anything, he had it pulled up on the browser. And what I didn't know at that time is that that experience would kickstart a almost decade-long addiction to pornography. For some of middle school, most of high school, and into my first couple years of college, porn was a regular part of my life. 
And I still remember my junior year of college meeting Jesus, coming to know Jesus for the first time and thinking, oh, this should fix my porn problem since Jesus isn't cool with it at all. And you may be surprised to discover that at least for most people, becoming a Christian does not in fact immediately fix a problem with porn. And so I went through years of, of being prayed with and, and prayed over, of asking for healing from it and having other people ask for healing from it on my behalf. And I would love to say that there was this big moment where someone prayed over me, something happened, and I just experienced immediate, total freedom from it. That happens for some people, I know. That did not happen for me. Instead, what it required for me and what it still requires is years of cutting off my hand, of taking seriously the fight against lust, years of inconveniencing myself to pull out the roots of sin in my heart and in my mind. And while I have seen a ton of freedom from all of that at this point in my life, what I've also discovered is that the roots of porn go way deeper than porn. Years of using porn creates patterns in your heart and in your mind that don't just magically go away. It, it creates patterns of thinking about other people and about sex itself that don't just vanish all of a sudden. So while porn may not be the main issue anymore, I am still regularly plagued by things and thought patterns in my mind and in my heart that all those years of looking at porn left behind. And if I am completely honest with you guys, there are days where I just feel so defeated by it all. By the fight against it, moments where I feel so frustrated that it often feels like I'm doing everything I know how to do and still those mindsets are still there, still those thought patterns are still there. Those ways of thinking are still there and because of that there are moments where I just feel like a colossal failure when it comes to the fight against lust in my own heart, no matter what I'm doing to fight against it. But it's in those very moments that I, like every one of us, need to hear Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Kent, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. If he didn't bail on you then, he's not going to bail on you now. If he wasn't disgusted by you then, he's not disgusted by you now. If he didn't leave you on your own then, he's not going to leave you on your own now. So just in case some of us in this room are like me, inclined to believe that God's love for us rises and falls based on the success of our fight against lust or just our fight against sin in general, can we just today once and for all put that lie to rest? That's not how God works. That's, that's what the cross and the resurrection were all about. The beauty of the good news of Jesus is that his affections for us always and forever remain the same. He is not caught off guard by what we're struggling with. He is not saying about you right now, man, I really thought they would have kicked that porn habit by now. I really thought they would be done with lust and sexual sin by now. I really thought that they would be done with gossip 
by now. That is not how Jesus thinks about you. Jesus sees you right now in the depths of your sin and the depths of your fight against it. And he says about that person, I love that person right now. You are my son, my daughter right now. In you, I am well pleased right now. Not once you get it all together, not once you stop struggling with whatever this thing is, right here, right now, you belong to me. That's the message of the gospel to each and every one of us that follow Jesus. And Jesus says that starting there, he will love us into freedom from our sin. That's the good news of Jesus. He's not waiting for us to get it together. He's not waiting on us to be perfect. He's not waiting on us to be impressive, to be loved. He sets his love upon us. He loves us into freedom from our sin. That's what the gospel is all about. We are called to fight against lust for sure, but God's affections for us are not based on how successful the fight is. They are based on what has already been accomplished for us in the cross and resurrection. And once you know that, if you're willing to fight, the power and shame of sexual sin ultimately do not stand a chance. So in just a few moments, we're gonna respond in worship to all of this. You'll have the opportunity to sing about it, to celebrate it. You'll, you'll have the opportunity to go to the communion tables and remember Jesus' body and his blood that makes all of this possible, that is a reminder of his affections, his attention towards us. If you're a follower of Jesus, going to communion is part of how we tangibly remember that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the whole point. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're internalizing. Literally, as we take communion, is this, that is God's posture towards us through Jesus. So if you ascribe to that belief, if that's a part of your story, you're invited to go to the tables and to celebrate and remember that together. Let me pray for us.